Good morning, church. Good to be with you here again today. Hope that you're having a great Christmas season so far. Merry Christmas to you, especially if you're a guest here with us today. We're delighted to have you here and uh, just thrilled to have the opportunity to worship with you and tell you about Christ and all that he means to us and why it is that we celebrate Christmas in the first place. If you have a Bible, turn with me, if you will, please, to John chapter 1. How would you feel if I told you I'm going to preach the entire gospel of John today? <laughs> You're thinking, well, that's cool and all, but I got to eat at some point, right? Uh, well, I'm not quite going to do that, but I do want to preface everything here by saying, you know what John does in chapter 1, verse 1 through 18, which I know I'm a bit of a nut to try to tackle all of that in one sermon, but I'm just going to hit the highlights tonight of what he says to us. In these first 18 verses, John, the gospel writer, pretty much says everything to you and everything to me that he wants us to understand about Jesus Christ. And then, for the remainder of the gospel, it's the proof in the pudding, if you could say it that way. Here's who he is for 18 verses, and then everything else, structurally speaking, in the gospel of John is designed and formatted in a way to prove the points that he lays out for us in these first 18 verses. And that's why one of the reasons that John's gospel is structured differently. If you pick up Matthew, Mark, or Luke, we call those the synoptic gospels. What that means, synoptic, means synopsis, or, or pretty much from the same perspective. And so what it's doing is it's telling you the story in a chronological form. They all follow a very similar rhythm. John structures all of the information differently. Does he get it wrong, the timing of the events and such? No. He just has a different purpose. He's trying to prove to you what he's going to say to us right now in these first 18 verses. So pick up with me in the verse number one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Listen to this, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now listen to this, verse 14. And the Word, that same one we saw in verse 1 through 5, the Word, the one that was in the beginning with the Father, the one through whom all was made, verse 14, and the Word, listen to this, it ought to knock you out of your chair. The Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. 
For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now watch this, verse 18. And no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him to us. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to understand who your Son is. So very much more than the cute caricatures we paint of Him the trivial ways of thinking about Him. That in this one that's come to us, that's been born to us, we have the Creator Himself who takes on flesh and becomes one of us. And He does so to redeem us and to reveal You to us. And so, Father, we pray this day that You would help us to grasp this and to worship You accordingly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What do we learn in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. What in the world is an incarnation? It's the enfleshment. When we talk about the incarnation, what we talk about is God Himself, the second person of the Trinity, the divine Son, who was in eternity past, who was there in the beginning as all was being created, that that Son, the divine Son, the second person of the Trinity, will now step into this world in human form. And He won't just show up out of the blue. He'll come in precisely the same way that you and I came into this world, except without a normal conception. He will take up residence in the womb of a woman. He will develop in her womb. He will come to full maturation. He will be born And He will come and He will live among us. He will take on flesh. This is what we talk about when we talk about the incarnation. It is God Himself taking on flesh, human flesh, and becoming one of us. And This is what we celebrate in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Well, question for us today is, well, what do we learn about Christ? And what do we learn about God through the incarnation? There's so very, very much I could say or we could consider in response to that question. We could indeed spend weeks and weeks and weeks on this passage alone, but I'm going to try to just hit the highlights as we go across this. The first thing I want you to see here this morning is that in the incarnation, Christ models for us humility and selflessness. We see this particularly in verse number 1 through 5 where John points to the the pre-incarnate realities of the divine Son, that He is an eternal person of the Godhead. As a Christian, one of the things that we affirm with Judaism is something called monotheism, that there is but one God, but unique from from Judaism and from Islam. When people say, oh, we worship the same God, listen, it may be true that there are some shared historical roots. It may be true that there are some shared concepts like monotheism, for example. But be very, very clear, the doctrine of the Trinity forbids us from saying that we worship the same God. Because what Christianity says is that though there is one God, there are three persons in the Godhead. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit, each possessing the divine nature, sharing in the divine nature, and wrapped up into the life of each other, yet distinct persons. These persons are present from the very beginning. We saw this just a couple weeks ago when we considered Genesis chapter 1. Remember this? And God said, let, remember that word, us. Make man in our own image. According to, here's another plural pronoun, our. 
likeness. The hints and the clues of this have always been there. But now in John's Gospel, he draws our attention to it with precision. Notice the first words of verse 1. In the beginning. Sound familiar? Does that ring a bell from anywhere else in the Bible? Perhaps you're rightly thinking Genesis chapter 1, one of the most important passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John now deliberately opens his gospel with the very same words of Genesis. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, John wants you to remember those words. He's saying, hey, do you remember that teaching back there? Do you remember that scripture now? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now John says to us, let me tell you more about that beginning moment. Yes, in the beginning, God, but specifically God the Son, is the creator of all of it. Watch what he says here, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, what is that word, word? It's the, from Greek, logos. And there's debate about the meaning of that. Is John alluding to the Greek notion of the, of the cosmic rationality that oversees and organizes everything, perhaps? Or is he building on the idea of a Jewish thought that the Word of God spoken and the Word of God active and the Word of God being powerful? In all likelihood, yes. What he's trying to show to both Jew and to Greek is that the one you've all been looking for is wrapped up in this one we call the Word. What is the Word and who is the Word? It is the second person of the Trinity. It is the Divine Son. In the beginning was the Word. What John wants you to understand there is that this one, the second person, the Divine Son, is not part of creation. No, He's not like me. He's not like you. He's not like the stars or the planets or any of these other things. The one that we worship this day is eternal and has been there from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, watch this, and the Word was with God. So no, wait, here's what you need to see from that. What He's trying to help you to see is this eternal one He speaks of is distinct from the Father. There's a distinction of persons that's already present here in verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So it's not the same thing as the Father here. And the Word was God. (laughs) This is where we begin to put together the doctrine of the Trinity. That though they share in the divine nature, they are distinct persons in the Godhead. But now verse 2. And in He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3. All things were made through Him. This is specifically the part that he wants to build on from Genesis chapter 1. Yes, in the beginning was God created the heavens and the earth, but John wants you to see now that the creative agent in it all was the divine Son. All things were made through Him. Consider the stars. Consider the planets. Consider your own life. Consider you yourself. He's going to talk about this more in verses 4 and 5 in just a second. Consider life itself and being itself. All that exists comes into existence through the spoken word. All things were made through Him. And listen to this. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. It is the Son who created all of this stuff. Now verse 4. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Here's what I want you to see in verse 4. That's, I think, a beautiful concept. And it helps us in so many different ways, devotionally speaking. In Him. In who? The Word. The Son. Christ. In Him was what? Life. 
What is God? He is Himself the fount of our being. God is Himself the giver of life. We could just say it this way. He is life. And so therefore, listen to me. Here's what I want you to see. To pursue God, to pursue Christ, just is to pursue life. Right? This is what Jesus said. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Understand those words. This is what the devil is up to in your temptation. This is what the devil is up to in luring you away from Christ. He's trying to destroy you. He's trying to steal from you. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10.10. Jesus says, but I have come that you may have what? Life. You see, being a Christian and walking in obedience with Him, as I've said to you before, is not about being a good boy or a good girl. It's not about behavior modification. It's about life. It's about living. In Him was life. So therefore, here's what I want you to see. To pursue Christ just is to pursue life, living, and fullness and shalom. And to turn away from God, who is Himself life, is to turn away into death. Hence, the wages of sin is death. Folks, there's no other possibility for us. You turn away from Him, there's nothing left for you but dying and destruction. So we're all free in this room to turn away if you want to, but you cannot have your cake and eat it too. You cannot turn away from the source of life and expect to live. You cannot turn away from the source of life and expect to be well. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men, verse 5. And that light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not comprehend it or is, not, or is overcome by it. The point is to say in verse number 5, Christ and His light and His life ultimately do overcome evil. Now what am I saying to you? Verse 1 through 5, I think that sort of walks us through understanding and exegeting what those verses are saying to us. Here's, here's what I want you to see. The one we celebrate is the divine Son, the one who made you. The one who made me. The one who spoke and brought all of this into existence. That's the one we worship and we celebrate this day. But now, with that beautiful thought in mind, think about what theologians now will call the great condescension of the Son. Who, though He is God, steps into this, warm, this world in humble form, the form of a human being just like me and you. Jesus stoops. Jesus condescends for you and for me. And what I want you to see here is the model for us. I mean, understand and cherish the beautiful theology of all of this, that the divine Son comes and takes on flesh. Real divinity and real humanity brought together in the one man, Jesus Christ, in such a way that the two natures are never mixed or confused with each other, and yet at the same time they will now be forever and ever and ever inseparable. This is what Christ does. Oh, the humility of our Lord, and oh, the model for me and for you. That Christ would show us what it looks like to stoop down and take the form of a servant. The second thing I want you to see here today, in the incarnation, Christ models humility and selflessness. But second thing I want you to see here is that in the incarnation, Christ brings redemption and hope to the world. Now, this is sort of scattered all the way through the text here. Verse number four, in Him was life, 
And his life was the light of men. Again, remember, I said this to us a couple weeks ago when we started talking about death. We say very unnatural things about death. We say things like, it's natural. No, it's not. We weren't made to live forever. You were supposed to. I mean, God made us to live, right? Christ himself is life for us. In Christ is my well-being. In Christ is my peace. In Christ is my joy. In Christ is my hope. In Christ is my strength. In Christ is my salvation. In Christ is my life. Verse 4, in Him was life and His life was the light of men. Look at verse number 10. He he was in the world, and this, this confounds us. The one who made us steps into this world. The one who made us loves us. And now watch verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. He was rejected. He was despised. He was shunned. He was pushed away. He was mocked. He was forsaken. He was neglected. He was beaten. He was flogged. He was spat upon. He was crucified. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And it's very easy for us this day, and this would be right exegetically, to note that John is alluding to the Jewish people. He came to his his own people, and they rejected him and pushed him away. That's certainly true historically. This is what John's alluding to. But there's also a, a sense and a level at which there's a warning there to all of us. We are his own people. And though I have accepted Him, and though I have given my life to follow Him, and though there is a track record of doing that, even I and even you have the propensity in any given day, in any given moment, to turn away from Christ and reject Him in our lives. And to say, no, no, no. We're not going down that pathway, Lord. We shall do it my way. Once again, I reiterate, you are free to do that, but there's no life in it. You can't have your cake and eat it too. This is why we say no to sin. It's not because we're trying and white-knuckling ourselves to be good men and good women and good boys and good girls. Listen, at the core, what the Christian and Christian maturity, what we come to is we come to the place where we realize now that sinning just is dying. Sinning just is decaying. Thomas Aquinas used this analogy to talk about sin. He said that when we are in sin, we're actually less human. We're actually less human when we're sinning because sin is a decay. It's a destruction. It's a rot. And the analogy he used is the analogy of a a cavity in a tooth, which is a very interesting thing I bring up because I broke a tooth the other night. Real sharp. Back here, I can feel it. No pain, but oh well. i got to get it fixed. That sin is like a cavity in a tooth that just eats and decays. So, for example, take a sin like bitterness. You say, well, I just can never let that go. Well, hold on to it if you want, but it's a cancer. It's a decay. It's a disease. And I'm telling you, there's no life in it. The reason we let it go is because there's no life in it. It may charm us and please us for a moment, but ultimately it only destroys and decays. 
In him was life. He comes to his own, his own rejecting. But now watch verse number 12. Verse number 12 is so beautiful. But while in the backdrop of those, him coming to his own and them, them not receiving him, verse number 12 tells us, but nevertheless to as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. We walk around and we say, well, we're all children of God. Well, in the sense, the book of Acts talks about how we are all the offspring of God. In the sense that, yes, we all originate from God. I guess you could kind of say it that way. But in the sense of an actual intimate relationship, no, we're not. It is for those who receive Him. Christ comes to us offering us salvation. And to as many as receive Him, to those He gives the right to be called children of God. You want to be a child of God? Then embrace the Messiah. You want to be a child of God? Then embrace the one who created you and now has given him his life and himself on, in, on, in death on the cross to redeem you. And if you do that, then you're now a son or a daughter. Verse 14, and the word became flesh. I'm going to circle back on that in just a minute. But watch this. We beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. And this only begotten of the Father, look at the end of verse number 14. This one that we celebrate is full of grace and truth. My goodness. What we have in Christ is not just a lawgiver. Someone that reveals to us. He does do this, but He does more than this. It's not just that He reveals the righteous standard of God to us. He shows us that this is what holiness is supposed to look like. This is what you're supposed to be doing. Just the other night, Natalie and I were reading through the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus would say things like this, Therefore be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Understand this, Christian. What Christ calls you to in the standard of God's holiness is not impossible. Or it's not difficult. It's impossible. It's not something that we just, oh, it's really hard to be perfect. It's impossible to be perfect. You can't do it. I can't do it. But ultimately, Jesus is not just the one that gives a law. Jesus is the one that shows us, even better so than the law, what God's righteous standard was. But He's also the one that was full of grace and truth. And now, He compares Him to John and to the law of Moses. Verse 15, John is the one that bore witness to Him. John said the whole time, the one that comes after Him is better than Him. Now verse 16, in all of His fullness we have received grace for grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. That is to say, in Christ we have one that not only reveals the righteousness of God, but then, listen to me, accomplishes the righteousness of God for us. And because of that, this is what the gospel tells us. This is what Paul would teach us in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That, that is to say that God's righteousness accomplished in the Son, Jesus Christ, is given to us via grace and truth such that His righteousness is imputed to me. And so what I want you to see here is that in the incarnation, yes, He models humility and selflessness. In the incarnation, Christ brings redemption and hope to the world. Jesus commands us, His people, to go now. And take the gospel 
to the nations. One more thing I want you to see in the text here this morning. In the incarnation, Christ models humility and selflessness. In the incarnation, Christ brings salvation to us. Thirdly and finally, in the incarnation, God makes it possible, Christ makes it possible for us to know God, for us to know the Father. Let me ask you this question. If Christ had not come, if we do not have a Bible, how would you know God? Maybe another question. What would you know about God? I don't mean to nerd out here, but this has kind of been like what most of my career has been about, chasing something, the arguments for God's existence that you can make from nature. You can make arguments for God's existence from the existence of the universe. And they're logical arguments, and you know, if, if there's a beginning, then there must be a beginner. There was a beginning, therefore there is a beginner. You know, you can do stuff like that. You can make arguments from design, called teleological arguments. You can say things like, well, if there's a design, there must be a designer. There is design, therefore there is a designer. You know, you can do that. You can do the same thing with morality, moral arguments. You can say, well, if there's a moral standard, then there must be, or if there's a morality, there must be a moral standard. There is a morality, therefore there is a moral standard. You can do these types of arguments. And there's lots and lots and lots of other arguments too. That whole enterprise is something called natural theology. Natural theology is the practice of drawing inferences from the natural order to a theological conclusion. Kind of like I was just doing. Well, there's nature and you got all these things and we can argue from that to a theological conclusion. My question I asked you a minute ago is if we don't have a Christ and if we don't have a Bible, what can you know about God? Could natural theology save us? And the answer to that question would have to be resoundingly no. Now look, I think you can make those kinds of arguments. I really do. I wouldn't have spent my whole career doing it if I didn't believe that. But understand this, the kinds of things that you and I could know, we could never get from those things to salvation. You would know very limited things. You'd know that probably there's something out there. But notice the language even there, it's a something. It could be a Star Wars force for all we know. I mean, we don't know what it is. There's a something out there. It's really powerful and, you know, up to something. And we can talk about maybe it has some intelligence given the way we see things in this world that things seem to be contrived, but you could know that there's a something and maybe it's intelligent, but I'm telling you, it would be an utter mystery forever for all of us and we would wander in darkness with no knowledge of God. And yet, Christ Himself has come that we too might know God. One of the famous philosophers of history, Immanuel Kant, argued that knowledge of God was impossible because there was what he called a great metaphysical divide between us and the metaphysical. God would be up in the metaphysical. There's a barrier. You can't stick your hand up into the metaphysical realm and grab God by the ankle. You can't transcend up out of this realm into the next realm up and ourselves hear his voice or see his face or smell Him, or taste Him, the five senses, which is what we know most things in this world through and by, we don't have access to God, and so therefore knowledge of God is possible, or impossible. And I would say to you, you know what, folks? Kant is not necessarily wrong. Not wrong about this, at least. Hear me out. He's not wrong about our collective inability to do just that. Truth of the matter of it is, I can't stick my hand up there and grab God by the ankle. I can't 
put my ear across that metaphysical divide and somehow ascertain God. I, if left to us, this is what I want you to see. If we are indeed left to ourselves, you and I would never know God. Verse 14. And the Word, watch this. The one that we talked about in verse 1 through 5, the Word, the one that is divine, the one that has been there from the whole time, And the Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. (laughs) It's as though John's reading the later Kantian mail in history. You and I don't have that ability to reach up there and grab that. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. This is why it is possible to know God. It's not possible to know God because Kant's wrong that you and I can get up there. I can't get up there. If left to myself, if left to ourselves, we could never get up there. We would be hopeless. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says we're not left to ourselves. While it is true that you and I can't transcend that realm to get there, God Himself can descend. I can't cross that divide, but He can. And in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that is precisely what we have. And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. Verse 18, no one has seen Him at any time. However, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, that is face-to-face relationship with the Father, He has declared Him to us. He has exegeted Him to us. So much so in John chapter 14, Jesus has just given that famous passage of, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. My Father's house, there are many mansions. That passage, right? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be sufficient for us. Watch this. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me so also has seen the Father. You want to know the Father? Look at the Son. You want to know God? Look at the Son. The author of Hebrews picks up on this same thing. Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 1 through verse number 3. Listen to this. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. In other words, what he's saying in verse 1 is, look, in the past, God would just speak through a prophet, which is, oh, by the way, another way of God descending down and crossing that divide and speaking to us. So we have the Word of God. But what the author of Hebrews wants you to see is that there's something even better to us, something even clearer to us in verse 2. But He has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, though He's also made all of the worlds, who being in the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What author of Hebrews wants you to see here, folks, is that in Christ, God is revealing Himself to us. And so, in the incarnation, here's what I want you to see from John's prologue. That Christ Himself... The divine Son taking on flesh. Wow, that's what we celebrate. Yes, and also note the model that this is for us. Hey, here's the question for you. If Christ would stoop, if Christ would lower Himself, if Christ would humble Himself such, 
then what might my humility as his follower ought to look like? What might your humility as a follower should it look like? Christ models this for us, and he calls us, as I've shown you in multiple passages over the weeks, Christ calls us to do the same. As followers of Christ to do the very same. Christ models humility and selflessness. Christ brings salvation to us. Secondly, let me apply this one in two ways for us this morning. There are some of you here with us this morning. We are grateful to God that you're here. But you don't yet know Christ. You don't understand the things of Christianity Praise God you're here and visiting. We want that. This is how it happens. We welcome you. We want you to be a part of this family. Understand this. Here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That while you were a sinner, that's you, that's me, I'm no different, I'm no better. Every last one of us, male and female, black and white, old and young, all are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. What I deserve, what you deserve, is eternal separation from God. That's the bad news. The good news is this. Gospel means simply good news. The good news is this, is that God so loved the world, you and me, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That means if you turn from your sins and trust in Christ, you'll have salvation. Christ came to redeem. Hey, Merry Christmas. Have you been redeemed? If not, let Christ redeem you even this day. For others in this room, you are in fact a believer. Are you carrying the gospel? Are you proclaiming the gospel? Have you rolled up your sleeves and pitched into the work of God's kingdom? And the proclamation of Jesus Christ, His Son, He has come to redeem and He's entrusted this gospel to us to carry it forward. Last of all, Christ came to reveal the Father to us? Do you cherish Him in that? Do you look to Him for understanding of who God is? This is what He's come to do in our life. Father, we thank You so much for Your goodness to us. I thank You for these men and women, this church, and all that You do through it. I pray, Father, this day that as we close this time of worship, that we, Your people, would have our hearts and our minds properly aligned before you, postured in humility, offering worship, and rising up to carry your gospel wherever you would take us. God, help us, we pray, to be faithful to you, to love you well, and to be changed by you in everything we do. Lord, we ask you to bless us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.